the never-ending story. We're teaching this morning from Mark, the 16th chapter, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to try to abridge uh, this message this morning and get to the, 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 the nitty-gritty, or the nitty-gritty. Get down to the, just to, to, because there is a word in here for us this morning, and it's really, it's, it's, this is the culmination of a series we've been teaching through Mark's gospel, and um, it was not my intent to do an exhaustive verse-by-verse study of Mark. That would take months, but just hit some of the highlights of, the, um, of, the, of, of that gospel. And today we will consider Mark's telling of the resurrection story, and there's something very interesting and very unique about the way that Mark relates the story. And um, we didn't have the occasion to preach the whole book, but we've tried to pick up on the poignant themes in particular passages. And hopefully our, our discussion throughout the Gospel of Mark may have whet your appetite to go back and to read that Gospel. It's a short Gospel, and so it makes for pretty, pretty quick reading, and it's real direct, and it gets to the point. But there have been a couple of things that I've tried to point out consistently as we've talked through that book. And the first of all is, is the issue of the tension Mark brings it out very, very plainly. There's a kind of a, there's an obvious tension, which we know in, in the Gospels, but we see it really in, in pretty stark relief in Mark between Jesus and the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious guys, right? The, you know about the religious crowd? And uh, there, there's obviously an antipathy between, uh, that, that they hold towards Jesus, and there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. We expect that. But we've also pointed out that you really get the sense that not only do they not understand, and I've used this, this, this language, they don't get Jesus, and they're trying to snare Jesus, and they're trying to judge Jesus, and they're trying to trap, entrap him in, in various legalistic issues, but the disciples don't fully get him. And the crowds get him in certain moments, they get the benefits of the, of the blessing of the ministry, right? But they don't fully understand who he is and who he is and what he's about. And what we'll see it this morning in today's message is that probably the one exception to that that's kind of goes without saying, but we'll kind of get a sense of this toward the end of the of the gospel, is some of the women around Jesus who seem like they probably get it. And that's kind of the way it is with regard to spiritual things, brothers. You know, a lot of times the, the women kind of have it figured out on the spiritual tip, and it takes sometimes, we, we, we're, we, we're kind of oblivious to what's going on. I know that's not a, none of my guys, because you guys are all like solid rocks. But, you know, really, just in the church, historically, it's been the way a lot of times women are the ones that, you know, particularly in, our, in some of the communities that we hail from, the sisters kind of get it when, when we're kind of like trying to figure it out. And so it seems like the women kind of go along and understand and kind of feel where Jesus is headed, but nobody else gets him. And so th- there's these various tensions that, that, that find their climax in the, in the passion narrative and in the crucifixion, and then ultimately they, they find a bit of resolve. But this morning we'll discover that there's not as much resolve here as we, you and I might like. And I, and I want you to consider that with me in a moment. But, um, and, and the other thing is that you know, we, I like to, to be honest about the reality of irony and paradox and the fact that in Scripture, actually everything isn't always tied up in neat little packages and handed to you. Everything is not, all the answers aren't simple. The cookies aren't always placed down on the counter where you can get them. There are things in Scripture that require thought. There are things that require reflection. There are things that 
you kind of listen to and hear and walk away and say, you know, I'll, I, I, you know, God help me to understand that and grow into that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm tired of this, this, this pedantic, uh, know-it-all, cliche Christianity, popular Christianity that claims to know all the answers, and sometimes the answers that we claim to know might be the wrong answers. And it's sometimes we need to, to kind of shut up and listen and learn a little bit and realize that it's okay to say, I don't know yet. And in the gospel, it's all right to grapple with belief and grapple with, with doubt. And it's all right to, to be honest about the areas where, you know, it's like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And we get that kind of dynamic. There's faith, and then there's, there are challenges of faith. There's faith, and then there's, well, I, I kind of see it. I kind of believe it, but I'm, having, I'm struggling in this area. And I know that many of us, though we are often in our church environments are, are, are discouraged from admitting it, often we have these these. These, these inconsistencies in our, in our thinking, and, and we're made to feel condemned and made to feel guilty and made to feel uh, shame because we are not as convinced about everything as everybody else seems to be. I'm going to tell you a secret, and I know this to be true. Uh, th there's a big facade that goes on in, in, among Christians, and everyone acts like they know everything and that they got it all figured out and they're really assured and solid and, and totally locked in, but we all got areas of struggle and, and doubt and and we all got things we're trying to figure out in areas where we're trying to grow and things we're trying to get together. And, and, there's, and there are things that, there are all of us that have areas of the gospel and areas of the, of the scripture and areas with regard to Christian doctrine and theology and those things that we, that we don't quite get yet. And so what's, what do you do? Do you check out and say, well, you know, you're not a real, no, you, 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 you sit with it and you listen and you learn. And in the context of community, you stay around other people. And you walk that out and talk that out and pray that out and live it out. And this morning as we celebrate the resurrection, this is a season, obviously, of joy and exhilaration, right? Can you say joy? The joy. And some of you are saying, this is a season of sleep. I've sat through one service. I have eaten. It is warm. And I feel sleepy. So I'm going to stay up in this mic to keep you awake. Now what I want to suggest to you this morning as we look at this text is that the gospel story, particularly as Mark renders it, is not quite the happy ever after story that we are used to. And it's not that ultimately the story does not become happiness ever after because the story is the most awesome story in all of human history. It is the most, it is the most wonderful and blessed story with the most incredible outcome. And yes, the ultimate result in the end, the long-term prognosis is that God's children are happy ever after. After, yes, we have the promise of a bright future, the promise of a bright eternity with God. We have, I mean, everything is taken care of. We are hooked up. But what we get from Mark's gospel, I will suggest to you, is not just a kind of happy uh, ever after ending that's tied up in a neat little bow and a neat little package and placed before us. But what we have is something different, an open-ended story where you and I get to step into the story and to play our part. It becomes a kind of never-ending story, particularly on this side of eternity, because it ends at Mark 16, verse 
8 or 9, but then after that point, it goes on and on as the church grows out of that and it goes down, extends to this present moment where you and I step into the story of the gospel and there are choices and decisions that we will make. There are things that we will do. There are, there are turns that we will make. There are, there are, there are choices we will make that will, that will have a bearing or will play out how, will have a, an effect on how this story plays out on this side of eternity. It's a never-ending story. Easter Sunday is not the end of the story, but it, it is a transition point in the beginning of a new chapter. Let's look at our text this morning, Mark 16, 1 through 8, quickly. Oh, not, uh, you got five minutes to do that. No. <laughs> when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back as it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out. Now, wait a minute. That, that's a happy point right there. Let's keep reading. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone. Why? For they were afraid. You, you know, movies sometimes have strange endings. Gone with the Wind is kind of a classic example of that. What, it's several hours long. You sit up there, and, and then uh, it's kind of known for the fact that when you get to the ending, you kind of sit there and say, what? So what, is this it? I mean, like, what's going to happen with, with Scarlet? What's going to happen with Red? What, where is it? What, what's, what's the ultimate resolution? There is none. It's just, you're just kind of left hanging. You know how it is when you're in the movie theater and you sit there? I, 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 we sometimes go to those free screenings for, you know, those pre-screening things. My wife got this hookup. And it was this, this one, and it's, it must have been a bomb because I think it came out and I never... Some of them, we've, there were movies we saw five years ago that we've never seen in the theater. You know, it's like, wow, they, they screen them quick. But there was this one with Steve Carell. It was about the end of the world. And, you know, and it was interesting. And then at the end, you would think that rather than you know, the world end, you'd think that there would be some rescue. But at the end of the world, it was just this blank screen, and apparently everybody had blown up, and it was over. It's like, we're sitting there like, that's not the way, you know, that's not the way you're supposed to end this. Can we get a happy ending here? You know, you, you, you sit there, and you're like, wow. It's like unsatisfying endings. I hate those. And you see them all the time because you might have your, 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 your view, your opinion about how a story should go. And that's Mark, Mark, Mark's Easter story is, is, is really the ultimate unsatisfying ending because we have all of the wonderful cinematic values of flight and terror, amazement, silence and fear. And I know that for Christians it's supposed to be shouting and dancing and joy and twirling and spinning and, and flowers and bunnies and Easter eggs. No, that's right, that's pagan, but you know... Uh, <laughs> Breakfasts and, 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 and uh, all kinds of stuff, worship teams and, and church bulletins and flowers and, and hats, ladies with hats and all that stuff. You know, Happy Easter, you know, Mary, Mary and, what, and Salome, whatever. This does not seem like a good Easter text. This, because Easter is supposed to be 
characterized by what we call triumphalism. It's supposed to be over-the-top joyous. We win in the end. It's all over. Jesus did it. It's all hooked up. Yay, 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 hallelujah. And we just shout till we're tired. We shout till we drop. And we, the guy preaches us up into another frenzy. Then we, just, we go home. Then we go find some more food to eat because it's Easter. And in this text, you don't find the joy and the wonder. You don't find the delighted astonishment and all that stuff. Because what happens here, biblically speaking, from, from a, just a theological standpoint, the earliest manuscripts of Mark and the basics of, of, of the New Testament documents is this. I know because the, the King James includes an, uh, an additional text there. The King James was, was issued in the 17th century. By, at that point, the church had a certain uh, number of, of uh, texts of the New Testament that had been collected. Uh, and they were assembled into one text called the Texas Receptus, from which the King James Version and others in that period were translated from. Now, that was several hundred years ago, and in the interim, a lot more doc, uh, New Testament manuscripts were found. Cameron mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls this morning. There were a lot of, there's Qumran, there were, a lot of, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of things that were found, and the ones that were found tended to be older than the ones that they had in, in that other time, and they, through the science of textual criticism, they were able to determine that. And so what happens is sometimes well-meaning scribes, and don't, now don't, don't come in and see that. I know they don't mess with the Bible, and that's why I can't know. There's, there's only a few situations where this is obviously the case, and it is documented in, that's why in your NIV and your ESV and others, there will be a footnote telling you that the oldest day, nobody's trying to cover anything up or hide. It's not a game. It's just that what happened, they were copying by hand, and well-meaning scribes in the, a couple centuries later, because they had theology and they knew kind of, like you and me, we know the whole story, the whole thing, the way it's kind of supposed to play out. There's some folks that were copying and said, oh, this is not cool. We got to, how would this, should this, how should this end? And, you know, with their they thought they were using Holy Spirit-inspired imaginations. But according to, I mean, current biblical scholarship would maintain that the oldest manuscripts don't include some of the other stuff that comes behind that in some other, uh, of the other translations. And so it stops here. You get that? And so it's just about as bad as a movie with an unsatisfactory ending. They said nothing to anyone. For they were afraid. That's the end. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How am I supposed to preach you happy on that? How am I supposed to stir your hearts on that? How am I supposed to encourage you on this morning? They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. How, how am I going to tell you God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind? Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's pleasure to give you the... How can I... When, last sentence of Mark's gospel, the end of his story says, for they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Lamar Williamson describes it this way. He says, when, an end, when is an ending not an end? When a dead man rises from the tomb and when the gospel ends in the middle of a sentence, the women went out from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. They said nothing to anyone. They were afraid for... That's how it reads in the Greek. In other words, they said nothing to anyone they were afraid for. That's how it reads from the literal Greek. In other words, the gospel ends with a preposition. The most important story of the Christian faith, how many, I mean, David and Goliath, that's an important story, but how many of you know that the resurrection trumps that? Daniel in the lion's den is important, but the resurrection trumps that. 
the most important story of the Christian faith just stops at the end and it just kind of hangs there and it's just kind of sitting out there. And you and I are, are just left hanging, wondering and waiting and we're left with this feeling of, of, of unresolved. Can you imagine on that Easter Sunday morning, put yourself in, in the story, can you imagine arriving with the women at the tomb like some of you all arrived at the church this morning and it probably felt cold as a tomb in here. And they walk up and they see that the stone has been rolled away. You see that, that it's been moved. And, and we're all together, we're wondering what in the world we're going to encounter. Again, take all the Sunday school out of this and realize this is real stuff. You come to your house and the front door is open. It's not like, oh, we must have had visitors. It's like, oh my God, what's going on in there? This tomb was sealed. This tomb was closed. And you come and the stone is rolled away. And their first thought is like, oh, wow, he must have resurrected from the grave and must have got up out of there. Now they're like, what's going on in those days and in these days as well? There, there were things called grave, there were people called grave, rob, grave robbers. There were all kinds of things that could have happened. They were wondering what was going on. And so th they're, they're, they're perplexed by that. And we step inside the tomb with them. And, and, and what do we see? Who are we looking for? Jesus, right? But what do we see? A young man in a white robe. We're not talking about this is a sauna or something either. This is a tomb. It's some sort of angelic being. And he speaks to them in verse 6. And he tells them what? He says, do not be alarmed. <laughs> you ever anybody tell you don't freak out? It's like, how can you tell me not freak out? A friend of mine, when we were teenagers, running joke is terribly in bad taste, but he would say, oh, don't, see that, don't, don't worry, it's, it's just a heart attack. Don't, don't be alarmed. It's like, we expected one thing, but we're seeing something else. But you're saying, don't be afraid. This is like scary stuff. We're human beings here. We're not like angelic beings. We are people. We're regular folks. And though we've followed Jesus and walked with him, and we've seen the supernatural, we've seen the things he's done, we believe in him. But this stuff, we're, in, we're, we're into some foreign territory now. This is some different kind of stuff. This is scary stuff. Don't be alarmed. Is that supposed to somehow be reassuring? Because, understand this, now stay with me, what, what these women have resolved is to deal with the reality and what, they, what do they expect to find in this tomb. They come with spices. What they expect to find is a mangled corpse. They expect to find a decaying body. That's, they expect to, to, to anoint this body with spices, but they expect to find a dead Jesus. They expect that. They expect that instead they find this strange guy with a robe on and his first words are like, hey, in the words of my brother Eugene, it's cool. <laughs> it's alright, don't worry. Simmer down. Chill out. Cool out. You're in this dark tomb. Some strange angelic being the body that you expected to find there is gone. He said, oh, don't, it's, all, it's all good, bro. Don't worry about it. And so what do you expect them to say? Oh, okay, cool. Thank goodness. We're, we're good. Okay, Mr. Guy in the White Robe. Uh, we were kind of worried for a second there, so, uh, you know, we'll just take these spices and go on back and tell everybody what's happening. No, it's not okay. It's, it's terrifying, and it's mysterious, and it's distressing. It, this is not normal. I can hear these ladies saying, don't try to tell us it's okay. Don't be afraid when it isn't. Don't you hate it when people try to reassure you? Sometimes, sometimes it's valid to, to be kind of worried. Now, it's, never, it's a sin to worry chronically, but sometimes you're supposed to be scared. Right? So 
Sometimes you're, sometimes you're supposed to lose your cool in the moment. Some things are strange and weird, and some things should provoke you in you some sort of visceral response. And I said, don't. This guy says, don't worry about it. He says, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. It's like, uh, you think? How many other corpses did we expect to find? Who else do you think we were looking for? And then this, this classic statement of the obvious. Uh, he's not here. Look, here's the place where they laid him. They know he's not there. It's obvious they see he's not there. Oh, this beautiful religious pronouncement. Look, he's not here. There's the place where they laid him. It's like they know he's not there. That's the whole point. They're staring at the place where Jesus ought to be, and they're probably looking around the tomb to see if they could they could have missed anything as obvious as a corpse wrapped in a sheet. What do you think? And finally, they, he said, the, the, the guy says, he's been raised. And they say, raised? See, again, we read backwards into the gospel because we know the end of the story. We know what the apostle Paul teaches about this stuff. We know the writings of Peter. We've read all four gospels and, and the Acts. We, we, we've heard the story told, and we've, we've been to the Christmas and the Easter pageants and seen it acted out. We've seen the Passion of the Christ 17 times and been her once or twice <laughs> and the Ten Commandments. We know the way this stuff is supposed to go. But they, in this moment, this is fresh territory. What he, he's risen. What are you, risen by whom? For what? Taken where? What's going on? Do they think this, I mean, is this supposed to really be helpful? And so do we say, well, okay, that explains it all. See, sometimes we really are really dismiss we're dismissive with people's questions and with people's struggles when people ask, ask about this stuff because we expect everyone to just see it the way we see it and everyone isn't quite where we are yet. We, you know, we, we sang He Lives, what, like seven times a day? And we played it in like three different styles. We, and we used it for main worship and filler. I used it to stall this morning before, you guys got, before we all got here. But we say, I serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. I know that he is living no matter what, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer in just the time I need him. He's always here. He lives. But there are people who say, what do you mean? How can someone who was dead, who was crucified, live again? How can this Jesus be alive? What do you mean he lives? Where is he? And we, we boldly intone, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. They say, well, I can't see in your heart. Sometimes the way we behave belies the fact that maybe we're not as convinced ourselves as we would want others to be. So, you would expect that they could say, well, we'll go back home and oh, have a nice day. You see, there's all this ambiguity that we miss because we know the meaning of it. We are on this side of the resurrection. We are thrilled with the excitement of Easter. We rejoice because we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We rejoice because so many of us, our lives have been personally and dramatically and, 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 and what's the word? Eternally affected by the reality of the resurrection. But in this moment, put yourself in the shoes of these three women. It wasn't quite so easy, and for some of us, it's not always quite as cut and dry and easy as well. And so, we, we look at the pretty story, and we can anticipate the next part where the women rush. They go on ahead, and they rush into the room, and they tell 
Peter and the other guys, they blurt out the story. But look what happens in our text. Mark writes, they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Period. End of book. The greatest news ever in the, in the history of humanity, and the only people that have the secret, they're the first people to find out this wonderful secret. And what do they do? They run off in abject terror and say nothing because they're scared. Or some of you would say they're scared. Because the resurrection for them, then follow me, listen to this, because this is, we're going somewhere with this. The, rep the resurrection represents kind of a bridge too far, a step too far. It's taking them into unknown territory. It's taking t them into a place that they're not, they're not ready to go to. And what you've got to realize about these women is that they, they have held a certain place. And unlike the guys, unlike the disciples, they weren't, the, they weren't so... So, so, so willing and so ready to, to dissuade Jesus from the path that he knew he had to go. Whereas, you know, Peter's like, oh, Lord, no, you ain't going to die. No, don't do that. They, were, no, they, they listened to what he said, and they were with him. The women aren't the ones that deserted Jesus. They're the ones that have been there. They're the ones who have served. They're the ones that have sat at the feet of Jesus. They're the ones that have gone the distance from Galilee to, Gal to Golgotha. They were there and they were with him all the way to the garden. And they had never denied him. They never lied. They never let go. They didn't do like Peter did. They were prepared to lose their lives for his sake. And now they come. They are expecting to pay their final respects, their final Honors to give him a proper burial, fo followed by all the mourning and the things that are a part of their culture that you do when somebody dies. But Mark is trying to point out something to us, that there is a certain shock factor about the value and the reality of resurrection. We rejoice in it this morning, but sometimes in the moment when you're faced with the issue of change, positive change, if you look at the scale of stressful stuff, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you thought if they did a st stress scale, it would be like the death of your spouse, bankruptcy, loss of job, your dog gets hit by a car, you miss lunch, you know, bad stuff. And, and, uh, and then un unstress would be get married, get a new job, blah, 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 blah. By the way, public speaking is really high on this stress list. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, um, but if you look at the list, interspersed in there are things that we consider bad and things we consider good. Getting a new job is stressful. Getting married to a new wife is stressful. Especially if the old one is still after you. I, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that's... that's that's threat level midnight. <laughs> but, you know, get, get, getting a raise, getting a new I mean, all the good stuff is stressful as well. Because there's something about change. Change is the problem. Change is, is the issue that we don't do change well as human beings. We like to maintain what's called homeostasis. We like, there's, there, there are a lot of systems in, in us physically and physiologically and psychologically and spiritually and socially. There are a lot of systems that work to keep things 
in a kind of homeostatic balance. Homeostasis means it just stays at a certain level, and, and there are corrective forces. If it starts to change, you know, that's why you watch the same TV program. You go to the same restaurants over and over again. You, you know, you drive the same way to work. I used to drive my mother crazy when I was driving, not because I was a bad driver, but because my mother was into, like, she went, when we would, she would go to church, she had one way she'd go. She would always use the term straight. You just go straight out whatever street it was, and then you turn right on that street. And I, and we lived in Carson and went to church up in L.A. It was like 14 miles, and she didn't like to drive the freeway. And so you can imagine over that distance driving through, there are like a thousand ways you could do it. And I like to do it different every time. And he used to drive her crazy. She said, why don't you just go the way I can? I said, well, I'm driving, Marshall. It doesn't matter. Why don't you let me go the way I want to go? And, of course, you can get slapped talking like that, right? But people like to keep things the same, and there's this thing about, 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 about the resurrection. And these women, they, 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 are, they are prepared. They are ready. They have been conditioned for what Jesus said, I will die. And they, they understand he said he would be raised, but they haven't dealt with the concrete reality of that. They are prepared to mourn. They are prepared to, they are prepared to weep. They are prepared to, to honor the body. Shock, man. The women can't cope with the shock factor of resurrection, what they can deal with. They can deal with suffering. Now listen, follow me. They can deal with death. They can deal with despair. Because that's part of life. However difficult and tragic, they can cope with the loss. They can cope with the, the future life hanging out among the tombs, visiting the dead bodies, honoring and loving the dead Jesus. It doesn't shatter their devotion. It doesn't mess with their faith at all. They are ready for this. This is what has happened. This is what they are attuned to. This is what they are prepared for. This is where their head is at. And that's the way we often choose to live. We can bear the histories of hurts and wrongs that have been perpetrated against us and damage that we've sustained. And we wrap all those things, all of the offenses and all of the pain, and all of, we wrap them around ourselves like some sort of well-worn blanket that keeps us comfortable in the moment. They become, as it were, our crutch. A tragic story that we think makes us then worthy of attention. Our excuse for being the way we are. Our justification for not changing. I've been hurt. I've been wronged. I've been, I've been wounded. I've gone through stuff. We can do tragedy. We can live the the guard life of the aftermath of Good Friday. We're, we're good with that. We can, we can live as the aggrieved, as the wounded, as the sad, as the broken, as the hurt. We're good with that. We know how to, we can handle that. But resurrection is an entirely different thing. Resurrection is something that is so radical and revolutionary and so new. It is so unexpected that it tears at the fabric of our universe. It shreds and reduces all of, our, all, of our, all of our defenses into some kind of terrified silence. Oh, they, they can cope with the way of the cross, the way of pain, the way of suffering. But the way of the resurrection, for them, ends up being their own kind of Gethsemane. Here in the garden, if you will, now the garden of tombs, like their male counterparts fled Jesus in the moment of his testing and trial, they flee Jesus in panic. Because the way of this resurrection thing is just a little bit too much. You see, moving from Good Friday, right? 
This whole thing about losing one's life for the sake of the gospel. Moving from there to Easter, which has to do with finding and saving one's life, it's like moving from one universe into another. And, and oftentimes we find ourselves with no compass points, no bearings, nothing certain. And part of our challenge is to confront again this crazy crisis that resurrection brings about. You understand what I'm saying to you? That resurrection is a wonderful and happy thing, but as we apply the story of the gospel, particularly in Mark's, to our lives, we find that resurrection brings its own set of challenges and has its own tendency towards a kind of disbelief because it upsets the apple cart. It rocks our world. We are, we have, we are entrenched. We've dug in. We are, we're used to suffering. We're used to pain. We've got our excuses all lined up. They work very well. There are some of us that have spent a lifetime as victims, a lifetime with all of the excuses, and we, they serve us well. We embrace certain levels of death and destruction in our lives because it's a safe place. It, it doesn't demand too much from us. We've lost. We're down and out. And so we'll just stay here and then we'll die. But all of a sudden the word of God comes and says, get up. He says, get up out of that tomb of despair. Get up out of that tomb of self-pity. Get up out of that place. Get up because your help is nigh because Jesus rose from the dead. You too can rise from the grave of sin because the stone was rolled away from the tomb. The stone can be rolled away from that tomb that's been holding you and there's a part of us that is scared. We don't want to come out that tomb. When the resurrection comes into play, understand this, when, when it's resurrection time, we cannot remain the same. When it's resurrect, when we, when we face the resurrection, we cannot live the same way we have always lived. We can't maintain the same old priorities. When it has to do with resurrection, it confronts us with our past history of hurt and failure, all the damage that's been done to us and the damage that we've inflicted on others, and it challenges us as to how we will deal with it and will we deal with it? And the question that the resurrection begs is, will we find the courage to leave the shadows behind and the move into the light? Or will we remain content to hang out in the tombs and the places of death? Because the truth of the matter is for most people that in a certain sense, it is easier to live among the tombs than it is to step into the new reality, the new dawn of the resurrection. And sometimes really, on the surface it seems hard, but Sometimes losing one's life is easier than finding it again in the risen Christ. As I said a moment ago, some of you are so used to suffering. You are so used to hurt. You are so used to pain that you are afraid of resurrection. You are afraid of renewal. You are afraid of the new creation. Some of you are, are not used to being loved. Some of you don't think that you deserve to be blessed. Some of you have somehow, somehow, deep inside of yourself, concluded that it's, e it's easier to keep on suffering in silence than to realize and to experience and to receive the forgiveness and the deliverance and the freedom that are yours through Christ, Christ's death and resurrection. It's easier to remain mired in the turmoil than it is to receive peace and be set free. Because there's a process involved in learning to live with the resurrection. Process involved in learning to find our bearings and to walk in the light. And this part of the difficulty is coming to terms with the 
end of everything, which Mark presents Jesus' crucifixion as being, because there's this element of radical decision-making involved, and then the process of growing into that decision. John talks about it in terms of moving from darkness into to light and to death into life. John, the first chapter of John's Gospel. Jesus talks about it in terms of being born again, and Paul talks about it in terms of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, of the new creation. Everything old has died and is buried. Everything has become new. But there's nothing obvious or comfortable about resurrection or about the Christian faith. Because to understand resurrection is to realize just how terrifying it can be. Because what is it about? It's about leaving the old behind, stepping into a future where the only thing that is assured is that Jesus has gone ahead, Mark 16, 7, and we will see him. You know how it is. There are times when you had to step out of one ugly situation by the grace of God into something better, and you should have been happy, but you were scared. God delivered you from that habit, and you were happy about being delivered, but you were trying to, it took you some time to get your bearings. You were kind of freaked out because you, you were used to that crutch. And as a part of you, it would have been, been easier to stay addicted. It would have been easier to stay in bondage because that was a simple route that didn't take any resistance, didn't take any courage, didn't take any fight, didn't take any struggle, didn't take anything. You could just stay there and keep doing what you were doing and being who you were, and you could do that and go on and on and on. But the resurrection demands a change. And so... Our Christian faith that we celebrate this morning, we've sung about it, read about it, we've read scriptures and, and responsive readings and calls to worship and we've said prayers and we've encouraged one another with all kinds of words. And our faith is born out of this, this incredible, unbelievable moment. We believe in the God of resurrection, don't we? The Bible teaches us that without the resurrection there is no hope. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. If Christ didn't raise from the, rise from the dead, if that is not a reality, then we should not have showed up this morning. This would have been a good day to play golf. Or for me, just go to the driving range. This would have been a good day to go to brunch. Not here at the church where you have to listen to guys preach to get the food. Or you can sit and look out over the water. This would have been a good day to sleep in. This would have been a good day to, to go to the lake, to go to the park, a good day to stay at home, to watch TV, to clean the house, because if Christ didn't get up from the grave, then nothing matters anyway. We are in deep trouble. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, you are still in your sins, and if you are in your sins, you are in trouble. But we are people of the resurrection and we believe that the resurrection is real. We believe that Christ was crucified and rose from the dead on the third day. And so a dead Jesus becomes this kind of tragic hero, this kind of martyr figure. And all we do is follow him and we lose our lives to him. And then we all become martyrs. And that's one picture of the faith. But we have not yet in that role found our lives. And what we're challenged with is that as Christians, if we lose our lives, we find them again. If we die, we live again. Paul is not talking about at least if you died with Christ, you found something worth dying for. We're talking about a Christian faith that is about something worth living for. Resurrection is more than the promise that our living and dying like Christ will make a difference to the future, to the world. Oh, I hope I can help somebody. 
I used to hate, I love a song, but I used to hate it. We, when I was coming, to say, if I can help somebody, blah, 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 then my living will not be, and that's all it said. And that's like, that's cool, but you know what? It's about more than just, and we want to help people. We want to make a difference in the world. We want to leave an imprint upon society. We want to make our mark in the lives of people. We want to be people of influence, people of destiny. But it's about more than that. It's about entering into the resurrection life that Christ died and rose to provide for us. Christian faith is about what is worth living for. The promise that we will share in this glorious future with him is the promise of life now in this world. Say in this world. I just did that to make sure you were still awake. Because resurrection, according to Paul, is the promise of release and liberation from this endless cycle of death and despair. Resurrection is the announcement of the victory of Jesus over the strong man. Who's the strong man in the, in the scripture? Is it with Samson? No. <laughs> the devil. Victory of Jesus over the strong man and all the powers of the strong man that enslave, stifle, and kill. What did Jesus say in John 10, 10? You say, I don't know. He said, listen, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I came that you would have life and that you would have it to the full. I came that you would have life and have it more abundantly. I came to give you real life. I didn't came to come so that you can live down in that hole that you've been living in, living in that tomb of despair. But I came to give you real life. And notice something. That, 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 that the Apostle Paul teaches, when you talk about resurrection, resurrection in the New Testament sense is something that happens to bodies. The skeptics and the more theologically liberal would say, oh yes, we believe in the resurrection. We believe his spirit was resurrected. And his spirit lives on in his people. They mean the ethos. His teachings and this, you know, they said, we, maybe you sit under Charles's teaching and my ministry, maybe you say, well, I, you know, I really picked up a lot of Charles's spirit. Yet not my spirit ontologically, not with regard to my being, but, you know, the kind of the, the aura of who I am and what I teach and how I think. And, you know, and so, so, yes, Jesus was resurrected. His spirit was resurrected. And, 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 uh, and the disciples, they have his spirit because they have the memory and because they blah, 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 blah. The New Testament makes it plain, plain that Christ was raised from the dead physically. Say physically. Resurrection happens to bodies. What is the importance of this? Paul picks up on this biblical link between sin and death because it's possible to read in this, this in some sort of purely theological terms that Paul is talking about, some sort of ethereal theological stuff, but he's not because sin is something that happens to embodied people. Sin is something that we do with our minds, but it's something that we act out with our bodies, and with our bodies we live and we act and we behave and we hurt and we oppress and we injure others. Sin is something that is concrete in this life in this physical realm, in this physical reality, and you and I are not saved from for some kind of disembodied life in some heavenly universe yet to come, but we are saved for life here and now, that is this kind of incarnated life where the Word takes flesh and takes bodily shape in this world. The resurrection means that we, have not, we will not only be raised when Jesus, when, when, rather when Jesus comes again at the, in the last day, we will not only be raised from the dead, but right now we live in the spirit of the resurrection and right now we walk in it and we are alive from the dead we've come out of the tomb right now resurrection is now it's not just some spiritual truth it's 
about the presence and activity of a living spirit. It's about a totally new way of living. Process of discovery and growing. Now let's, let's, let me wrap this up. And you're saying, it's about time, preacher. I would say to some of you, I would be candid. Some of you, I don't get here too often. So I'm going to take my time. Because I want to make sure that I, I, I make good... Uh, you know, just kidding. Octavi says I'm not. Listen. Let's, let's tie this together. Let's tie it together. What if Mark's gospel ends unceremoniously at verse 8, as we see here, for they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Stay with me just a few moments. How do we process such an anticlimactic ending to what is otherwise a thrilling and exciting story? And I think the clue, when we've been studying Mark, and we started right at the beginning, and I've been reading through and studying through the whole book, and I think if you go back to the beginning, you get a little bit of help with this because you've got to look at the first verse of the first chapter. This is the beginning, and this is what, this is what Mark begins with. He, he says this, the first things he writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, a cursory reading would maybe conclude that he's saying, this is the beginning of my gospel, verse 1, boom, there it is. Booyah, gotcha. I'm, I'm, I'm off and running. Verse 1, this is the beginning. It's like, does he really need to do that? If it's like the first verse, we know it's the beginning, right? So think about this. Just go here with me for a moment. What if we were to think of the whole gospel as being described in this one verse? In other words, Mark's saying, I'm giving, I'm writing these 16 chapters. They weren't really broken into chapters in, but we'll just say for the sake of just for the sake of discussion. I'm writing these 16 chapters. I'm writing this gospel, this piece of literature. I'm writing it to encourage Christians who are being who are struggling. I'm writing it to, to build up the church. I'm writing it to convey the teaching about Jesus. This what I'm writing, here's the beginning of the gospel. Here, boom, here's the gospel of Mark. This is the beginning. You put it on the cover, the beginning of the gospel. Instead of calling it the gospel of Mark or the gospel of St. Mark, what if we just, if the title was the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Do you, do, any, do you see where I might be going with this? Oh, give me just a few moments here. I'm almost done. Then what happens, we're brought to the threshold of this part of the story of who Jesus is. Jesus, having been crucified, now is alive in this world that is literally reverberating with the powers and possibilities of the resurrection and waiting for us. Because what happens is the story ends here at verse 8, but the story doesn't end. Tells the ladies, he's going on ahead of you in the Galilee. That's the way Jesus is. Jesus is always out ahead of us. That's why we find ourselves, if we're good, we want to be good followers, because Jesus is always out ahead of us. He's going in, and then now, the question is, you come out the tomb, you're scared as all get out. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what time it is. What do you do? And that's where the story gets exciting, because end of this, this book, 
But now there are other books that will have to be written. And there are other chapters and there are other parts of the stories. And there are other, there are other accounts, there are other narratives that will come into play. You understand what I'm saying to you? So this morning, 2,000 some odd years later, you and me, see the beginning of the gospel, the gospel hasn't ended, the good news isn't over, the story hasn't been concluded. When all is said and done, everyone will know that he's the one, but right now we're still in the interim, we're still in the continuation of what happened here. They went out, they were afraid, now we know that they came to grips with it and that the disciples came up to speed and, and it all worked out and we understand that everybody saw Jesus resurrected and they understood and he got them back together, he restored Peter, we see in Acts 1, he ascends and goes back to the Father, he tells them to go to Jerusalem, we see how it all plays out, but then there's the story, Luke breaks out a whole other chapter in the book of Acts as, as the Christians, as the disciples go in the upper room and the Spirit of God comes and follows them. They start preaching all kinds of crazy stuff breaks out and we see all the choices and the, and the challenges that are made on the part of Peter and Paul and James, the other apostles and other people in the book of Acts. And then that chapter closes and we go into church history and for hundreds and hundreds of years, people like you and me live and die and we're faced with the same choices. What will we do when we've lived long enough to overcome the terror of leaving behind our old world and allowed God to let the Holy Spirit, the power by which God raised Jesus from the dead, loosen us. We need to allow God, and this is the part of our story now, to transform us and then to go out into the world and make a difference for Christ's sake. And that's not the frivolous use of that phrase, but for Christ's sake, for his glory. Now the, the issue is what will you do? Resurrection has come. Resurrection is here. Resurrection has happened. If you were a Christian, you have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Now will you cower in fear? Will you run and hide? Will you rely upon the same old crutches and the same old excuses and the same old mechanisms that everybody else uses? Or will you step out into the light of God's glorious resurrection? Will you allow that power that raised Jesus from the dead to raise you out of the deadness of your sinfulness? Will you allow that power to break the bonds of sin in your life that they've already been broken? You've just got to walk in it. Will you allow God to heal you in those broken places in your emotions, in your heart? Will you allow God to finally erase those, those things that you've been holding on to? Will you give it to Jesus once and for all, that, the things that have already been nailed to the cross? Will you accept the new life that he's already died to give you? Or will you continue on with the same excuses? Because it's easy to live among the tombs. It's easy to deal with death. It's easy to embrace the suffering and the pain because some of us have been down so long that down looks like up. But it's a day of hope. It's Easter Sunday. Say, turn to somebody say, it's Easter Sunday, baby. And it's a day of new hope. It's a day of new beginnings. And some of you have been confronted with the possibilities of Christ's resurrection, but you fled in fear. That's for some of you. God has touched, has spoken to you and dealing with you, but... Some, the reason why some of you don't commit to God, the reason why some of you don't commit to church, the reason why some of you don't commit to change, because you're afraid. You're afraid. If you join the church, then, if, then people will expect things of you. And then, wow, I'll, I'll be, what's going to happen? If, if, I, if, I, if, if, I, if I really give my life to Christ wholeheartedly, I, I can't, I'm, will I feel, start to feel that tug on my shoulder when I'm doing those things I know I shouldn't do? If I really give myself to Christ, if I really surrender to God's will, people will want me to do stuff. And you'll, I'll have to let go of those things because, man, you know, that, that Hennessy been, 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 holding, been, been holding court in your life and been keeping you cool. And, and so cannot put that behind me and let it go. 
All that, that intimidation and that nasty attitude has served you well because it's allowed you to, to, to be able to fend off people and keep everybody a step back. If I, if I die to that and, 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 and allow the love of God to, 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 to flourish in my life, I won't have that defense anymore. I won't be able to blow folks off and cuss them out. And, and uh, somebody, Some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's Easter Sunday. How can I live without my old crutches? Oh, it's like, man, it's like some of you, you might, be, you might have a handicap, but you don't want to get well because you don't want to give up that placard. You want that parking space. You want that little wheelie cart in the supermarket. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with you, but you want that ride. You're going to get your grits off the shelf and rolling all over people's feet. Get out of my way. <laughs> God has put strength in your feet and in your ankles and your legs. has healed you. You, was, you got hurt on the job 17 years ago, but you still got that little thing in your window. And people wonder why you pull up in the parking space that says handicap. And you jump out your car and you walk in and they say... <laughs> But you want to keep that crutch, you want to keep that symbol, you want to keep that protection, you want to live under that, under that label. That's why we want to say, oh, I'm hurt. If you're hurt, I, I'm, I, I mean, y'all know I love you, right? You know I love everybody. I love everybody. I, and I love you, I love people. I, I, my life has been serving in people. That's what I'm called to do. This is what I've spent the last 22 and a half, almost 23 years of my life in this location. But you know what? So, so, sometimes you got... I'm hurt. That, it's like when your child says, you know, they go out and they get hurt in the yard and you put a Band-Aid on it. A few days later, you expect the Band-Aid to come off and a little scab and then, they come, and then they're better. Sometimes the question becomes, how long will you be hurt? Are you, do you want to get over the hurt? Do you want to give the hurt up? Do you want to be healed? And for some people, the answer is, I don't know because being hurt is convenient. Being wounded is convenient. Being wrong is convenient. I can, I can use that as an excuse to do what I want to do and not do what God calls me to do. How do we live without the crutches? So I say to you, I'm just about done this morning. And I, I was waiting, you know, I was something to, to visitors, you know, I, I got this thing. I, I used to keep a few dollars in my pocket. Yeah, see, I keep a few dollars in my pocket. And see, if you, would you like go long? And, and then, you, you know, you talk a long time, and then you got people, and they say, take your time, and then after church, you have to go up and give a little Pentecostal hand. Thank you. And that's totally a joke, okay? <laughs> 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 oh. But listen, 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 listen. This is what I want to tell you this morning. How many of you hear God speaking to you? How many of you know that what I'm saying this morning is right? How many of you know this is the truth? And the truth will set you free. And so I say to you, I'll tell you this, boldly embrace the resurrection. Boldly embrace the promises that God extends to you in this day. God has a new life for you, and you don't have to be afraid of the new thing. You don't have to be afraid of the resurrection life. You don't have to be afraid of the change. But even if you are unsure and uncertain, I'm going to tell you something. Today is your day. This is your moment. This is, this is the hour of your, of your transformation. And I'm going to tell you something as I'm wrapping this up. Because I'm going to tell you the reason why I believe this story goes on and what's so exciting about this. I, I don't believe, and I stand in, you know, there are different views in, in Christendom about this, but I don't believe in, in a fatalistic fixed future with regard to everything. And I, when I hear people say stuff, you know, like, 
you know, it don't matter what you do, it's your time, it's your time. And then I said, then why are you drive? why you put your seatbelt on when you drive? <laughs> like somebody always, the, you know, the big rhetorical, you know one of the big rhetorical questions of life is, why do kamikaze pilots wear helmets? There are some things that are fixed by the Father's design. Jesus made that clear. No one knows the hour or the time of Jesus' return. There are some things that God has set in stone. God is sovereign, yes. But God also has put some things in your hands and my hands there. Because if, if that were not the case, then why do we pray and expect causality, expect God to answer prayer and to do things? I don't believe in a fatalistic fixed future. In other words, I don't believe that you, the station of life that you're in is where you you are destined to remain. I don't believe the situation that you are faced with right now is what is God is, is that, that 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 is horrible and and messy and nasty. I don't believe that that you are destined and doomed to stay in that place. I believe that there is change in the power of the resurrection. I believe that there's a prospect for transformation. You don't have to go out the way you came in. You know, and you know what some of the old brothers used to say. You know, uh, somebody uh, somebody was you know telling the guy say, hey man, you know. Uh, you ought to, you know, wear this, this coat is that. I ain't, nah, that ain't my style. I ain't going out like that. And you, you know, you don't have to go out like that. You, you might be, you might be burdened down with, with guilt from your past, but you don't have to go out like that. You might be carrying hurt and pain and all kinds of emotional scars from abuse that was, that was perpetrated against you, but you don't have to go out like that. does not need to be the end of your story. The resurrection means that by faith in God, Christ's resurrection becomes your resurrection and your story is rewritten. And you can have that this morning. Can have that. And listen, understand this. As the gospel story continues, here's a question as the band comes forward. Will you allow Christ's resurrection power to roll the stone away from your tomb? Will you be free and uh, will you be set free to live anew? Will you walk in the experience of all that Jesus died to provide for you? The choice is yours. Let me tell you something. God has already done all that he can do. In, in, in Romans, I'm sorry, first, uh, in 2, Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ died for all, therefore all die. And now, without getting into that whole passage, the point is that the sins of humanity were placed on Christ. He died for all, so all died in him. And the sacrifice has been made. The price has been paid. Here's the deal. Jesus invites us into a loving relationship. And loving relationships are characterized by reciprocity. Right? God could have said, you know what? I'm going to make all you guys like robots. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. And you're going to do just what, you know, you're going to, you know, and, and I'm going to, I remember, I was at the Supremes or Diana Ross. I'm going to make you love me. Oh, yes, I will. I always thought that was weird. I'm like, how are you going to do that? <laughs> and if anyone could do that, God d could do that. But God doesn't do that. God loves us and lavishes his love on us and, and, and has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Jesus died and sacrificially gave his life for us to free us from our sins, to show us the Father's love. And he says, now, God, we love him because he first loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He says, we love him because he first loved us, but we have the, ch it's, the choice is ours to respond. Resurrection life has been provided for you. But you've got to step up and walk in it. Amen. 
You've got to, you've got to claim it. You've got to, you've got to grasp it. You have to be willing to go through the challenge. You've got to be willing to go through the fear and the uncertainty yeah. of the new thing. Because yes. in, in, in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, if anyone is in Christ, Second Corinthians, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things.